welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Francis Watch on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and on this episode, I am joined by His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn, Rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida, and Father Anthony Chicada, Associate Pastor of St. Gertrude the Great Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio. Your Excellency and Father, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. It's nice to be here once again. This episode is free for the first 15 minutes to non-members. To receive access to all Restoration Radio episodes, please visit restorationradionetwork.org and go to the member area on the menu bar to find out details on becoming a member. If you would like to purchase an individual episode, such as this one, navigate and simply click the links below the player on this page. After completing your purchase, you'll be emailed a secure download link. Restoration Radio episodes are syndicated on iTunes and Stitcher. If you are listening to our content on those platforms, please be sure to leave us ratings and reviews. This will help those who are searching for truly Catholic programming to more easily find our content. You can find the links to those two syndicates on our homepage. Well, uh, Your Excellency and Father, we're here, the last Francis Watch of the season. And for those people who really enjoy this program, it'll be until next year that they'll get to hear of the misadventures of uh, the Argentinian gentleman. Uh, as always, Francis provides us every month, and he started this month, uh, well, starting this, this month's episode, we want to talk about a speech that he gave in Florence. It was very forceful and had lots of applause it was noted not just for the content, but for the commentary from the conservatives uh, about the content. As usual, it had a lot of applause. But I'll start with just a few lines. Um, and I don't know who would jump in first, uh, Your Excellency, Your Father. So we'll, we'll let whoever um, feels the spirit moving him uh, to encounter this text to go first. Uh, he says... We are not living an era of change, but a change of era. Before the problems of the church, it is not useful to search for solutions in conservatism or fundamentalism, in the restoration of an obsolete conduct and forms that no longer have the capacity of being significant culturally. Christian doctrine is not a closed system, incapable of generating questions, doubts, interrogatives, but is alive knows being unsettled, enlivened, said, said the quote-unquote Pope. It has a faith that is not rigid. It has a body that moves and grows. It has a soft flesh. It is called Jesus Christ. Uh, I don't know whether the alien body that he's describing would, would bear any resemblance to our Lord, your Excellency, your Father, but um, perhaps you could give us some insight. Well, it's, I mean, it's broken record. I mean, he has been saying this in so many ways since the day he was elected. Uh, this is perhaps the most dramatic way he has said it, the most direct way, but it's the same old, same old theme that uh, all of the, whatever's left of the, uh, the Catholic Church in the Novus Ordo has to be raised, uh, R-A-Z-E-D, and, and come to ruin I often think of the Roman Forum, where there's still a few columns left. There's a few columns here and there that are standing up. Those have to come down <laughs> that's the, until the whole thing is a wreck and a ruin. That, that's his idea. Is that, and he's talking to the Italian bishops who, tradi- or historically, have always been more traditional. 
they were the most of them were quite conservative of Vatican II, with a few exceptions. But Italy has many, many dioceses, and Italy has always been a place of uh, traditionalism, we might say, when it comes to the Catholic faith. And so uh, he's most likely excoriating these bishops who, uh, some of them will say, are trying to hold on to those few columns left of Catholicism in the ruin of of the Roman form, or or the you know the Roman Church, uh, and uh, and but you, you know, he has this obsession about this stuff. I mean, who is this? I think was immediately after the synod, and you can tell that he is just boiling over the conservatives at the synod, who blocked a lot of his agenda, and essentially he's yelling at these people. Uh, that uh, you know we can't have any more of this Roman Catholicism around here. It's essentially what he's saying. It's a um, uh, very significant speech, as His Excellency said, because it repeats the same old themes. But it's almost like a um, uh, sort of a State of the Union type of address of what he really wants for his platform and for his program. And as we see as we go through this, he uh, keeps on hitting these uh, these particular themes. And conservatives should um, really take note of this, that uh, he is uh, serious about putting into practice these different principles that uh, he's talking about, that uh, in effect... Um, end up destroying what whatever little is uh, uh, left of the previous structures and of the previous ideas. So I think it's a, um, uh, the fact that it was so long, his speech was so long and so detailed and so uh, vehement, and obviously, if you read the whole style of it, he's obviously thought out the different images that uh, he used in order uh, to convey uh, his uh, to convey his program, so it's 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 something where everyone really should uh, sit up and uh, take notice. I don't think it can be easily explained away by your conservative uh, apologists. No, there's nothing in it that, that admits of uh, hermeneutic of continuity. <laughs> this is about as, as rupture as you can get. Sure, and, and you, the the idea of Christian doctrine is not a closed system, incapable of generating questions, doubts, etc. So the, that's the accusation that he is he is making against the conservatives that they have a closed system, and this is not uh, Christian, and that you have to have this this. Um, in effect, this constant revolution, this constant uh, uh, boiling uh, situation in the church, where uh, nothing is is unsettled, as far as the idea of nothing is settled. Yeah, uh, the the um, uh, hermeneutic of continuity or anything like that. He doesn't buy that. He absolutely doesn't buy that, and he uh, refers to it as uh, fundamentalism. Or the reform of the reform—that's that's obsolete conduct. Uh, no longer has the capacity of being significant culturally. And there you have the theme uh, of the accommodation to uh, accommodation to modern culture. 
and the accommodation to uh, modern society. So, I mean, there's uh, so much wrong with just a couple of sentences of this, and it's it's uh, so significant, it's as if it's radioactive. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you used the term unsettled, Your Excellency and Father, and he says, I would like an Italian church that is unsettled, always closer to the abandoned, the forgotten, the imperfect. Uh, dream of this church, believe in it, innovate it with freedom. I mean, these, this is just, there's, there's no, I, I think delusional is the word I read, uh, is the word that comes to mind when I read this. He's also saying, wherever you are, never build walls or borders, but meeting squares and field hospitals. Again, this idea of transition, nothing permanent. Uh, why would you build a wall? Walls are for permanent structures. You must build a field hospital. It's extraordinary. It's nothing less than a call for the abandonment of Catholic dogma and morals. Don't forget this is in the context of the Synod where uh, he is very upset about the fact that he did not get his full plate as he wanted to, uh, and uh, he is is angry. You can see an anger in this, uh, and uh, he's lashing out at at those who would uh, hang on to the vestiges of Catholic dogma and morality that remain in the Novus Ordo, the few that there are. I mean, uh, you know, the conservatives, quote-unquote, the the final vestiges of the natural law, such as the Church's condemnation of divorce and remarriage and fornication and sodomy. These these basics of natural law, which even decent people who have never known the name of Christ uh, would also condemn, the, the you know the fact that he can't get what he wanted from that synod uh, you, you you see this this lashing out in this uh, and he's saying it to all of the bishops and the whole world really it is a very significant speech but that's okay. what it is this is all modernist code for uh, for tearing down the the dogma and moral teachings of the Catholic Church. Uh, and and uh, making the Catholic Church into essentially a, a theological revolution that goes on on and, and on and an evolution constantly changing where nothing nothing is is set and and defined. It's uh, also uh, significant, as we've said, because of the uh, question of the program uh, that he he outlines, but. If you look at the the details, the different statements that uh, he makes, uh, he is he's he's waving the flag of the revolution under the, the um, uh, under the banner, as it were, of the papacy. And I remember there is a um, modernist writer named Richard Rohr, R O H R, Novus Ordo priest, whom I, I quoted uh, in. Uh, at, uh, on a uh, blog that I did about uh, some of Francis's earlier um, statements that were sort of uh, that were in fact crazy, and uh, Rohr said uh, of this this one particular quote uh, that Francis made that uh, the fact that a pope said it uh, is uh, significant. It's not something that can be unsaid that can be taken back in the context of uh, the Catholic Church. So his, his uh, statement 
war said is 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 something that will be there forever and that will uh, that people will appeal to well he's done done that with a whole bunch of things uh, uh since that uh, initial dispute and now he's he's really done it with this uh, speech in florence yeah i mentioned that in the sermon on my sermon on sunday where i talked about the 50 years of vatican two and uh, my point was that we cannot permit all of this theological trash that has come out since Vatican II to be bound in the same book uh, as the papal teachings uh, uh, before Vatican II. That this cannot take its place in the archives of the Catholic Church. That this belongs in the garbage can, literally. And and therefore, you know, to, to have any idea of a hermeneutic of continuity or to be a side chapel of tradition in the modernist cathedral is something very, very offensive to God and to the, the, the true defense of the faith. Uh, it, it is, uh, you know, to accept this as something that, that the Catholic Church can live with, all, all of these blasphemous statements and blasphemous acts and all of this liturgical aberration for the past 50 years is something that cannot pass. As the French said at uh, Verdun, they will not pass, meaning the, the Germans, you know, and they, they, they will defend and not permit them to enter into Verdun. And the uh, same is true, uh, you know, that, that we cannot let it pass. And, you know, God has, has absolutely no care for numbers, none at all. Uh, remember that he reduced to 1% the number of people that showed up in the Old Testament to fight the Amorites in, in the sixth book of uh, Judges with Gideon. He, uh, 30,000 showed up. He picked 300 and used them in a miraculous way to overcome the Amorites by making noises and other things. And... and uh, the, the same is true of though you know of a restoration of the church. We have to be uh, suitable instruments of that, and we are not suitable instruments if we are willing to compromise and to accept all of this stuff as Catholic, as as being part of the the Catholic deposit. Uh, uh, it has to be thrown in the trash. It has to be completely wiped off the the board. Uh, and I think that's a very important point here. Uh, those who, who try to compromise with this stuff are doing a very grave disservice to the Catholic Church. As a sidebar, if you're interested in listening to Bishop Sanborn's sermon, you can go to mhtseminary.org and click on sermons. They're also syndicated on iTunes, so you can uh, listen to Bishop Sanborn's sermon, which was quite good, Your Excellency. I didn't have a chance to tell you that. Um, it was very it was very Pelagian, I might say, because oh. it says it, is, it it brings a style of control of hardness of normalcy. The norm gives to the Pelagian the security of feeling superior, of having a precise orientation. In this, it's found its force, not in the lightness of the breath of the spirit. Again, trying to create a separation between the Holy Spirit and precision as if those two things are opposed, as if the Holy Spirit, uh, the Holy Ghost, is opposed to a precise orientation. Yes, well, that's immanentism. That's one of the ingredients of modernism. Uh, and uh, so, you know, that the Spirit moves you. You know, that, that's, that's the idea, uh, the modernist idea of the Spirit. Don't forget he's a Pentecostalist. That, mm. that he's... Uh, and, and whereas... Uh, uh, this our Lord calls the Holy Ghost the Spirit of Truth, 
And truth uh, necessarily uh, expels falsehood, just as light necessarily expels darkness. Uh, and and uh, so, you know, I think there's a bit of a difference between uh, Bergoglio's idea of what the spirit is and what our Lord's idea of what the spirit is. Well, I think the spirit's moving me to move on from this speech uh, to the uh, the commentary on it. Um, Father, there was a gentleman named Pietro de, de Marco who wrote for Corriere Fiorentino, which is a supplement of Corriere de, Corriere de la Sera. Um, can you tell us a bit about what the reaction was to this speech? Well, um, this uh, particular uh, writer, either Mr. or Father de Marco, uh, did an analysis of the speech and uh, said that it uh, really had the spirit of demagoguery about it, uh, that um, Bergoglio seemed in the speech uh, intentionally to set up uh, an opposition uh, between uh, uh, the plebs, between the people, and the uh, members of the hierarchy who were opposed to this particular program. So he talked about how many times the speech in the Cathedral of, of Florence was interrupted for applause on the part of the members of the congregation who were uh, present. There, uh, uh, DeMarco said that there are all these, in effect, applause lines. And we're familiar with that from American politics, that you know if a, um, a presidential candidate or if the president makes a speech, he uh, includes in it uh, several... Uh, lines where everyone uh, really is supposed to applaud, and this is the the, the nature, I suppose, of of uh, democratic, so-called democratic politics that we uh, the, the, that the crowd is supposed to react to that. So Demarco sees elements of this uh, throughout the uh, whole speech of Bergoglio. Uh, he says that it was uh, in effect political. Uh, and uh, that uh, he was was uh, using this um, uh, using the crowd as 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 uh, a method or as a sounding board to get its uh, his his message across against clear theology and against Pelagianism, etc. Uh, etc. Et uh, DeMarco also makes the point that uh, he says this. Also troubling is Pope Francis's reference to Gnosticism, a temptation he has told us that, quote, leads to trusting in clear logical reasoning. <laughs> That's really bad. <laughs> you know, as, 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 <laughs> as they say on the Internet, LOL, right, laugh out loud. Uh, here, too, DeMarco says, in order to single out for the people's execration, that part of the church which is seen as culpably cultivating intellect and doctrine, a bit like St. Thomas Aquinas and countless others, uh, re uh, remaining in the end closed off in imminence. So, uh, <laughs> the, um, Marco, DeMarco has, has, has certainly got the drift of what this guy is up to. Uh, imminence for, you know, the lay people is, is another modernist code word, we might say. That means uh, that God reveals to you and to each individual uh, what he wants you to believe, and, and he gives you a, a religious experience. You discover God in yourself, 
And dogma in that case is merely a, an expression of your religious experience. And when a church finds itself with many people of the same religious experience, it makes dogmas out of their religious experiences, which means they can obviously change as human life changes and, and human beings evolve and all of that stuff. So that's what he means by imminence. It, it's anti-dogma. You see, this is something that was explained by uh, uh, St. Pius X, that uh, you know, dogma in the Catholic sense is something that comes from above, it comes from revelation, which ceased with the death of the last apostle, and which is proposed by the Church and defined, and which must be accepted by faith, and is immutable. Even the very Pope defining it cannot alter it. Uh, it is immutable once it falls from his lips that this is a doctrine, or you know, the general teaching of the Catholic Church, too, the ordinary universal magisterium. So uh, th those are two things very opposed, and that's where Catholicism and modernism are very, very deeply opposed, is on the question of dogma. And so the, this commentator is, is correctly opposing, uh, he, he says uh, that a bit like St. Thomas Aquinas and the countless others, remaining in the end closed off in imminence, as if we're uh, setting aside St. Thomas Aquinas and and choosing imminence, and that's exactly what Bergoglio wants, uh, because obviously nothing's immutable in imminence, and it all comes from the inside, it all comes from, from below, and there are no dogmas, there are no walls, everything is possible, and, and we're open to all things. No rigidity, you know, none of that, fundamentalism, none of that. The, the other interesting point that uh, DeMarco makes is this. Uh, he says that... Uh, Bergoglio is not a private teacher, charismatic. He does not preach private revelations, he is Pope. Instead, and now he wears the twofold role of institutional leader, uh, now of anti-institutional charismatic who pits himself against a part of the Church. If as head of the Church he has all the powers that this entails, as charismatic he exercises whatever his intentions may be, an objective, antagonistic action against institutional circles. Uh, the scholar would say he is operating as a faction head uh, for supremacy in his party, which is also the dominant party, taking down the old leaders, not minding the victims. Uh, this is why his address at Santa Maria de, del Fiore has the aspect of a speech at a political convention of historical and uh, recent memory. So he's in, got, in, uh, in our parlance, Father, I guess we would say he's railing against the man, except that he is the man, apparently. Uh, yes, that's, that's, a, uh, that's exactly it. And this idea, um, uh, this, this sows confusion and uh, promotes the uh, revolution and tears down the institution. And it says that the, the instruction of the Alta Vendita said... Um, <laughs> You know, in the last century, or the century before uh, that, that you have a revolution, uh, you know, uh, marching in a cope and tiara. Well, not exactly that, you know, uh, uh, but, uh, you know, an Indonesian. Iron cross and, and plain black shoes, maybe. Yeah, or, or yeah. Uh, a clown nose and an Indonesian hat, okay, <laughs> uh, carrying a beach ball, okay. But uh, that's, uh, that's the idea. That he is, he is, uh, uh, he is the man, as it were, and he's against the man. <laughs> so it's 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 a terrible uh, uh, it's it's a terrible uh, recipe, and it's very effective at uh, tearing things down. 
Yeah, it's as if it were a political, uh, a, you know, a political entity. Uh, it's like uh, Democrats and Republicans, and he's railing against the, the Republicans, so to speak. And uh, as if the church, and especially the head of the church, if we you know hypothetically call him that for a moment, uh, you could get into parties like that. Uh, and, and could yeah you know there's no sense of being the head of all Catholics. It's just here's here's the party line. You accept it, and everybody that's in my way will will be machine gunned by the death squads. <laughs> yeah. well, well, both of you are referring to politics. Uh, the the uh, article that uh, Father Chicada found ends with this with this quote. Much used and admired in politics, this practice, the idea of applause, is not so in the church, where the applause of the faithful does not legitimize anything, does not add one iota to the power of a pope and the value of his decisions, where sanctions against errors of orthodoxy and of practice must be conducted not by slogan, but under the banner of doctrine and law, where the bishops are not the members of a central committee or the directors of an apparatus at the mercy of a democratic political leader. Boy, yeah, you, very, you, we gotta get we gotta get this guy on our mailing list, Your Excellency. I mean, yeah, although he's gets, really gets, rigid and fundamentalist. I mean, he's <laughs> he's declaring himself to be you know is you know, hanging off the the uh, the other side of the ship. The uh, what do they call it? The board and the another. He, he's he's. Uh, what he's saying, Bergoglio would say, no, that's not true. It's the people. Uh, the, the, it, the power comes from the people, and the the doctrine comes from the people, and the bishops are there to listen to them and to to change the doctrine according as the people change. So, I mean, he's he's saying something that is Catholic here, this man. So, yeah, he should be on the mailing list. Uh, although I fear that he's one of those uh, hermeneutic of continuity people. Uh, who worship, as I call it, the unknown God, that, that <laughs> nobody knows what the hermeneutic of continuity is. No one can describe it. Not a single person can say what it is, but they worship it as their Savior, that this is the way that they can connect post-Vatican II with pre-Vatican II is by this unknown hermeneutic of continuity. It is the object of their faith. And it is the savior of their faith, because if that collapses for them, then, you know, they, they see discontinuity and, you know, what's left, and that is the, the rickety rail and the Grand Canyon, in, in, in which, they're going, which is going to break and they'll go over. That means sedivacantism. That means they have to say that the whole thing from John the 23rd on is one big revolution that has to be dragged into the trash can on their screens. Well, I mean, the unknown God, that just certainly fits in with there being no Catholic God. That's, <laughs> right. that's a, I think that's a good fit. So that's the same Paul said to the Athenians. You, you worship an unknown God. And by the way, there's the altar to, to the unknown God in the UN. I don't know if you know that. Mm, yeah. But the, uh, the, that's what St. Paul said to the Athenians, and that's what these Novus Order conservatives worship. I, I, I've never, ever seen, and I've asked and asked and asked, what is the hermeneutic of continuity? What is the key between pre-Vatican II and post-Vatican II, the missing link, that, that skull that we have to find that, that will make the whole thing one? And nobody knows. <laughs> nobody can explain it. 
You know, but it's so important for them. That's the one thing they hold on to. It's like when the subway train is going around a very, very sharp curve. You have that that strap. You know, otherwise you fall down. No, that's a New York thing, by the way. So. Right, right. Well, one one of the explainers of the unknown god uh, or of the uh, the doctrine of Bergoglio is uh, this uh, man named Spadaro. Father Chicada, can you tell us a bit about? Um, Civilta Catholica and uh, and this gentleman. Well, uh, Civilta Catholica is the Jesuit newspaper, uh, and it's it's been around for a long time. And since uh, the 1840s, I think. Yeah, it, and and it's it's uh, all this has been regarded as a, a newspaper that reflects very much the uh, line of the Holy See, very much the line of the Pope. Uh, it uh, used to be that, uh, in fact, the um, Pope uh, looked at uh, every edition of it, in effect, to uh, approve what went into Civilta Cattolica. So it's, it's a, a very closely tied to the uh, to the Holy See. Uh, Jesuit newspaper, all this has been run by the Jesuits, and the current editor is uh, Father uh, Spadaro. And um, uh, Spadaro was the um, man who did the initial uh, interview of uh, Bergoglio that uh, caused so much uh, so much talk back in the in 2000 toward the end of 2013. So uh, he, he and he's considered to be very close to uh, Bergoglio, uh, and is considered to be someone whom Bergoglio consults. Uh, very much, and uh, who gives Bergoglio uh, ideas. In fact, you'll you, you see pictures of uh, Spadaro uh, walking with uh, Bergoglio uh, during the uh, during the Senate. Some of the reports on the um, Senate and on how. Uh, from uh, Francis's side, he was he was handling things. Spoke of uh, uh, sort of a core group of Jesuits, including uh, Spadaro, who uh, came up with different uh, ideas and different programs for Bergoglio. So he's considered uh, someone who is is uh, very much a spokesman. He's like the he's like uh, the Cardinal uh, Rodriguez Maradiaga. Who, uh, who was goes the top around banana? The, I think wasn't it? Was uh, he was the top banana. <laughs> yes, in the uh, in the uh, what is it? The G nine group of cardinals. <laughs> so uh, I, I mean, uh, so when either of these guys speak, um, you know that you're uh, uh, you're getting a, a message, as it were, from uh, from the captain, from Bergoglio. I guess from the captain of the banana boat in the case of the other guy. You know, so, the captain of Gilligan's Island, more like. <laughs> There's a 60s illusion for you. So, uh, in any event, uh, he, uh, Spadaro, did uh, an article, uh, a fairly extensive article, uh, doing an analysis of uh, what went on at the Synod and of um, the Bergoglio's reaction to it. So, in listening to Spadaro, you get very much uh, what is the uh, reaction uh, of Bergoglio himself. So it's very significant. So, for instance, um, one of the 
points that Spadaro makes is um, uh, pluralism, that he, uh, in contradistinction to people who try to give the Synod uh, and Bergoglio's speech a uh, sort of a conservative spin, um, Spadaro uh, says that um, synodality implies diversity, a solution that is good for New Zealand is not so for Lithuania, an approach valid in Germany is not so for uh, Guinea. So beyond the dogmatic questions fully defined by the magisterium, the pontiff himself observed in the talk, uh, it is evident that what seems normal for a bishop on one continent can appear strange, almost a scandal to a bishop on the other continent. So he's quoting Bergoglio, and he's highlighting here a uh, significant passage. And he's telling, uh, by doing that, he's uh, telling us, Spadaro is telling us, that this is what Bergoglio considers a really uh, significant, this notion of a pluralism and accommodation to culture. So that is, um, that's one point on here. Uh, so you see the, uh, through Spadaro, you see the mentality of Bergoglio very clearly emerging. Yes, giving to the Episcopal conferences, or even just to individual bishops, or even just to parish priests, the decision of whether something is a mortal sin or not. Abandoning, since uh, uh, the Pope abandoning the magisterial power that goes with the papacy and handing it over to to bishops and to local locals, and yes, where you know you could be <laughs> your your adultery could be uh, you know you could be in the state of grace in adultery on one side of the river, but when you cross into the other diocese, then you're in mortal sin and going to hell. You know, and uh, depending on the bishop, uh, depending on the country, and, and or you get on a plane, and and in one place it's a sin, and another when you arrive in the other place it's it's not a sin, uh, and you know that that destroys the very essence of Catholicism. The very term Catholicism means universal, and you can only have that universality if you have universality in its essential elements, and its its essential elements are dogma and morals. I mean, at the top of the list, many others too, but uh, the uh, you cannot have diversity in that. You can have, uh, as I said in another show, diversity, uh, certainly uh, Spanish Catholicism is quite different from English Catholicism in, in accidental things, uh, but they are exactly the same in all of the things that pertain to the very essence of the Catholic Church. And here he is is getting right into the to the the bone marrow of the Catholic Church and destroying it. Yeah, the um, uh, the, the cultural is a code word. Uh, it's like pastoral is a is a code word, and the the, the idea is to uh, relativize. Uh, or do away with absolutes by reference to some sort of a culture, which is a um, uh, the the notions of what makes uh, a culture and how a culture operates. That's essentially a a uh, modern idea, as it were, the uh, the, the framework that's put uh, that's put on things. So he is introducing this particular uh, modern concept into the notion of the faith. And uh, the uh, I think all the time of uh, uh, the one line of, of Herman Goering, 
that uh, he uh, is supposed to have said that whenever I hear the word culture, I reach for my revolver. And uh, <laughs> because the idea is that it's used, it's uh, used in such a way uh, to uh, uh, undermine different ideas. And Bergoglio is using this to undermine the Catholic faith. You know, something that both of you have said since almost the beginning of this season of Francis Watch was the idea of the 60s have come back again. And you felt like you were reliving that time period in your Catholic life. And just we see, again, some of these tropes with Spadaro. He mentions the siege mentality. He rep- he mentions opening the closed doors. Weren't we told that this was what Vatican II was going to do? Oh, it was yeah, just going to open, open the windows and we were going to move some yeah. furniture around. And then he says... Um, the intervention of the conservative cardinals was, uh, it contradicted the spirit of encounter. So it's okay for the, the, left, the left-leaning German cardinals to present their plans, but anyone who contradicts the Germans, this contradicts the spirit of encounter. Right. I suppose That's he's reaching democracy in action. As well. <laughs> right. <laughs> the, yes, in as other words, you're the conservative it is, it is. cardinals just shut up. <laughs> <laughs> It, it is a rerun of the 60s ideas, and the uh, siege mentality business is something that one heard in uh, the 60s. And in fact, there was, it might have been a book or an article by that awful creature, Urs von Balthasar, who mm. uh, wrote a book called Raising the, the Bastions, and raising in the sense of, of uh, destroying the church's defenses. And he was very much in favor of that idea. So uh, we are, in fact, on this point back to the, uh, uh, to the 60s and to the 70s. Yeah, and even going deeper than that, uh, that has been the, uh, at least in my opinion, uh, the, the problem since, I would say, 1800, is that the back and forth, what to do with the modern world, and you had some papacies saying, Oh, we have to get along with it. Others saying, absolutely not. We have to build a wall and protect the church from it. Uh, and you saw that, and I call that the pendulating papacy. And the although none of those people were modernists, and they would be horrified to see anything that's going on today, nonetheless, the ones that were saying, well, we have to get along with it, provided an atmosphere for these people, provided an atmosphere for the radicals and the modernists to develop is that, well, you know, we have to, uh, you know, go along. For example, Leo XIII issued a, an encyclical in 1902, Graves de Comuni, in which he, because he was concerned and upset, because people were using his encyclical Rerum Novarum of 1892 as a, as a means of Christian socialism, you know, that, that the Church is now into Christian democracy, Christian socialism, the Pope is, is for all of these, these movements. And so he put the brakes on that. And, but I, I point that out that while these Popes never would sanction anything like this, nonetheless they, they lifted to a certain extent the siege mentality and said, you know, we have to try to get along with the modern world and so forth. And that gave a uh, sort of a, a psychology to the radicals to say, well, let's move forward with this until you got to Arancali. 
so that that they they uh, they rose and rose and rose in in the church and became more and more numerous until Roncalli came along. That's the whole problem is Roncalli that that he unleashed this idea of lifting the siege, whereas Saint Pius X was the, <laughs> the you know he built three walls around the church <laughs> that he understood the problem very very deeply. And understood that if you did not build those walls and protect the Catholic Church from this evil mentality of of making it conform to the modern world, you're going to end up with exactly what we have, what we're looking at today. And that's the the, the you know the problem of, of appeasement of yes. uh, people like this is that it's a it's perceived as a sign of surrender and as a, a sign of uh, weakness. And uh, that's something you can't can't engage in, as I think they say in Florida that um, never throw a live chicken to an alligator because he keeps <laughs> on coming back for more. <laughs> I did not know yeah. of that expression, Father, until I was at Most Holy Trinity, and uh, the, His Excellency educated me on this important <laughs> gator this etiquette. Uh, see, this this shows you, Stephen, the importance of local culture. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose, though, you might want to reach for your revolver when you think about a gator uh, coming for you. Um, speaking of reaching for my revolver, I wanted to talk about Cardinal Joseph Bernadine. Um, he was quoted by uh, Francis as sort of a model uh, of uh, U.S. bishops. And this was something I heard. I spent a year in a high school run by the Servite Fathers. And at the time, it was very popular to discuss the seamless garment of life. So I suppose two things. Uh, can we talk about what this seamless garment was and who Cardinal Bernadine was? Because I don't assume that all of our listeners are familiar with him or his role in the American church. Well, all I know is that he was the quintessential liberal modernist of the church and the leader of the whole left wing of the church when, you know, the Novus Ordo, when he was in power in Chicago in the 1980s and I think early 1990s. Yes, he um, was a, um, I'm not, uh, not sure exactly what part of the country he originally came from, but he rose in um, prominence in the American hierarchy because he got uh, involved in the central um, administration of the National Conference of Catholic Bishops, which was, uh, you know, responsible for implementing Vatican II. Eventually, he was uh, appointed Archbishop of Cincinnati. Uh, he was a uh, he uh, destroyed the church uh, quite definitively in Cincinnati. Cincinnati became one of the worst uh, dioceses in the post-Vatican II Church in terms of its. Uh, liberalism, etc. And for this, he was uh, promoted to the See of Chicago as the uh, Archbishop. And he was an enormous, because of his connections uh, uh, through the Bishops' Conference, uh, everyone knew him and they knew what his, his ideas were. So the, all of the, the um, liberals, the, the real modernists in the hierarchy, gravitated toward him. And he used his influence as Archbishop of Chicago to uh, install his liberal protégés in different dioceses throughout the country. 
And this had an enormous effect on the way things unfolded uh, in the United States. I think the last, what they call the Bernadine Bishop, was the Archbishop of Santa Fe, who retired only uh, only recently. So he had a reputation for uh, really being a liberal and really being an, uh, doing an awful lot of harm. One of the things that he did to undercut... Uh, traditional Catholic teaching was this uh, seamless garment idea that uh, you came up with, that uh, the uh, conservatives were, uh, of course, very concerned about the question of contraception, of uh, abortion, etc. Uh, what Bernadine did is he came up with uh, a way of morally... Um, Making these these uh, individual acts morally equivalent to allowing people to die of hunger or not taking care of immigrants, uh, etc., or or of engaging in wars. So what he did uh, by uh, the, making this this moral equivalence with the seamless garment theory was to take the wind in effect out of the pro-life movement uh, in the United States. People rightly perceived that Bernadine was uh, was undercutting them with uh, this this idea of uh, equating everything, putting everything on the same level. That's what I was told, and that was the uh, the hip thing to uh, believe in in the late '90s, at least among progressive uh, lay teachers at my high school. So I was taught all about the importance of the seamless garment. But I think I'm bringing up his appointment because. This is one of those things they talk about in U.S. elections, Your Excellency and Father, the importance of Supreme Court nominees. I think, uh, and for those who are interested, His Excellency mentioned the pendulating papacy. That's available at True Restoration Media if you'd like to go check it out. Shameless plug. Uh, but when we talk about the importance of the papacy, it's, I suppose, one of these things we don't, lay people don't necessarily think about, Your Excellency and Father, which is the appointment of bishops. If you have someone like Pius X appointing bishops, that's a completely different look and feel for the church on a local level than when you have someone like Benedict XV or Pius XI appointing bishops. Am I right? Yes. The the uh, the, the Pope could be the uh, saint. He could be uh, the most wonderful person that's sent by God. He can say wonderful things. He can make wonderful laws. But the bishops are the are are the nerve endings, so to speak. And he, he could be, you know, he, he's just in Rome. If those bishops do not carry out his instructions, do what he wants, and and agree with him, he's just nothing. And effectively, effectively, and the bishops in that sense. And that, not in any other sense, but in that sense, run the church. They they are the managers. They're the local managers of the Catholic Church, and they get instructions from the papacy. They have a, a vow of obedience to to the Roman Pontiff, everything. But if they don't carry those things out, it's like a brain that has no nerves. The body is paralyzed, and and uh, so that's that's uh, you know. Uh, so the appointment of bishops is, is critical. In, in the Catholic Church, and uh, is you know, if I were running for Pope, I would say I would make a, a seminary for bishops in Rome. 
that if you are appointed as a bishop, you have to come and spend a year in Rome so that the Pope could talk to you and and find out who you are, what you think, and, and instead of just having a name, you know, a list of names, and, well, you know, this is, uh, this is a, you know, so... Uh, you know, people that are good, or you have no idea who those people are, or only you know some sort of peremptory idea. The 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 uh, there needs to be a you know you know to solve this problem in the church, a much greater attention to the appointment of bishops. Another problem in the church too was all of the exequaturs that were demanded by the governments. See the the uh, with. Pius VII in the 18, early 1800s, the Church pursued the idea of making concordats with all of these anti-Catholic governments. And so the, all of those governments said, well, fine, you know, we'll give you these concessions, but we want to name the bishops. We want to, uh, or at least have a, a veto on bishops that you might name. Uh, Pius X, for example, was held up for years from Venice because, uh, you know, they, they knew who he was. And, and uh, Leo XIII got him into Venice only because of a, a sort of an arrangement, you know, a give and take with the Italian government. So that, that was one of the problems, is that you had bishops being named, who, you know, essentially by Freemasonic governments. And, and uh, you know, that, that's one of the sources of Vatican II, is that the, 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 the Pope didn't have really a, a totally free hand in the nomination of bishops. Uh, that's something that should be understood. But, but yes, bishops are critical to the Catholic Church, and and uh, uh, so um, and uh, yes, I, I I know Pius X understood that he was a bishop himself for many years, and and uh, uh, he was a sort of a hands-on bishop. A lot of the a number of the popes that came in the 19th and 20th century were people that never had pastoral work. Uh, the uh, they they never were parish priests, uh, you know. Some of them uh, they had uh, diplomatic and and ecclesiastical. Like Pius XII, for example, was a diplomat. Yes, yes, Pius XII. Uh, uh, Pius XI was in the diplomatic corps and and also the head of the the library. And you know he was a, a an intellectual. And you know nothing. I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying that. The beauty of Pius X was uh, he was a, a farm boy who grew up to be a priest and and had a very, very uh, deep sense of pastoral duty uh, and, and understood uh, you know, he was hands-on, very much hands-on as a, all through his life. Even as Pope, he was very much hands-on. And whereas uh, some of those others, uh, you know, were just pure diplomats uh, and uh, also coming from aristocratic circles, they were into uh, the idea of never making waves. You know, you you can't do this because he's an aristocrat and the family has very good connections with this. And you know, aristocrats are very aware of of keeping things very smooth and and pleasing people, whereas you know farm boys really don't care, <laughs> and and they they just do what's right. Uh, and um, <laughs> he was so Einstein was so poor that. When he went to the minor, minor seminary, which was a five-mile walk, uh, or four-mile walk, I think, uh, one way, he took off his shoes when he left town and wore, went barefoot so as not to wear out his soles. Yeah, I, That's I was how thinking, poor he was. Again, Your Excellency, you always give me product ideas. I was thinking of a T-shirt with Pius, uh, with Pius X's picture on it, and underneath it would say, farm, farm boys don't care. 
and uh, <laughs> it would it would it would drive home that point. I, I, with with Pius X, I think I, I just want to take this out a little bit further with you, Your Excellency. Uh, in the military, we would we would talk about uh, officers who were former enlisted, and that they they always had a lot more respect from the men because that officer had experienced what life was like as an enlisted man. And I think of Pius X very much as sort of taking that role, having worked in the trenches. And he and I, I because of that, I, that's how we got uh, daily communion. I think that we can look to the fact that he was in the trenches and he had a chance to bridge the gap between what the Catholic practice had always been, what he was observing in the parishes, and then his power as the Pope to do something about it. Uh, I think it was a unique and special gift given to us. It was not a gift given to Catholics prior to our time, and it's something that we just don't take advantage of enough. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. I think he realized the necessity for a greater protection of souls that the Holy Eucharist would give and a greater nutrition uh, of souls and maintenance in the faith and all of the virtues uh, because the, he understood the onslaughts of the modern world and he saw it firsthand in, in Italy and, uh, you know, as... as uh, he was so hands-on that as Bishop of Mantua, he would visit the seminary every single day, which was next door, and teach in the classes, talk to the seminarians, and every night he had a conversation with the rector of the seminary about the seminary. <laughs> and and he he was that you know no bishop I mean, the visit of the bishop to the to the seminary ordinarily would be maybe once a year the limousine pulls up in front and all of the seminarians who knew for two weeks already that he was coming would be there to greet him and looking wonderful and so forth and he would walk through and get a meal and go home you know that that was the episcopal visit to the seminary. <laughs> But the the uh, I mean he was he wanted to know exactly what was going on in that seminary and in his encyclicals he talked to the bishops a lot about forming seminarians you know that was the other thing those were the future bishops and uh, so yeah he he was uh, he was a uh, you know the last great one we might say and and if his policies had endured we would never have seen Vatican II never. Mm. That, but the the idea came back of well let's get along with the modern world and let's get along and let's get along and uh, and that provided an atmosphere for the radicals that it was not such a bad thing to want to get along so to speak and and they they used that uh, as a springboard for the changes of Vatican II. That technique you talked about, Your Excellency, uh, has an acronym in business school. It's uh... Uh, MBWA management by walking around. Uh, the idea that you are you are making sure that things are are, are going well. Um, Father Chicada, I want to transition to some after effects. Our last show obviously uh, was dedicated to uh, last episode was dedicated towards the synod. We're not really talking about that today uh, because we have other things to, to cover. But one of the remaining after effects came from Scalfari and a clarification of something that he intimated. Can you tell us about that? Okay, well, <clears throat> remember Scalfari. He's um, the uh, atheist uh, journalist who's a, a good buddy of uh, Bergoglio. And Bergoglio has given him, I think, at least four interviews since uh, since his election. So the latest thing was after the, um, after the Synod, uh, Bergoglio gave uh, another interview to uh, Scalfari, 
to communicate a number of his uh, ideas. So Scalfari asked him about the conclusions of the Synod of the Family and um, about the uh, how, how this would apply to the question of um, uh, the divorced and remarried um, receiving Holy Communion. So uh, Bergoglio gave a, a general overview to Scalfari about this, and he said the following, the diverse opinion of the bishops is part of this modernity of the Church and of the different societies in which she operates. But the goal is the same, and for that which regards the admission of the divorce to the sacrament, it confirms this principle that has been accepted by the Synod. Uh, this is the bottom line result. The de facto appraisals are entrusted to confessors, uh, but uh, at the end of faster or slower paths, all the divorce to ask will be admitted, in other words, to communion. So he uh, communicates this this idea uh, to uh, Scalfari that, well, it is the uh, confessors in the parish, uh, the parish priests who hear confessions, if there are any who do that anymore, I suppose, who will uh, determine this, this issue, and the divorced and uh, remarried may uh, go to them for absolution, in effect, for permission to receive the Eucharist. So it's a, um, uh, it's Bergoglio's way of, of communicating what he wants. And again, this is the sort of thing that uh, cannot uh, be undone. He leaves a little bit of, of cover for conservatives who would uh, say that, well, this wasn't a, uh, any sort of an official interview or anything like that. So he leaves what... Uh, Richard Nixon used to refer to it as as some plausible deniability to it, but <laughs> to 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 those who who know what the code language is and know how he communicates, here's the idea. Well, I guess all you got to do is ask, uh, Father. That's all you got to uh, do. Yeah, that that that's cer- that's certainly how it seems, right? That's certainly how it seems. All, uh, all you have to do is ask, and, um, you know, there's no difficulty, no problem. So all of this is um, really undercutting uh, anyone who wants to maintain uh, the idea of a continuity with past discipline in the Church. I think we call that the Sixth Commandment of God. Uh, yeah, you know. Uh, <laughs> I think it's a term for that. Yeah. Well, you know, think of the movie where the the fire is putting is putting the the, the commandments into the stone, and, and uh, you know I, I think it's something to do with that. Yes, yeah, something to do with that. But then the next uh, article I notice on our uh, uh, discussion list here is a um, uh, article by a priest who is proposing a way. Uh, for the divorce and remarried to receive Holy Communion by means of a rescript. Now, a rescript is, is canonical lingo for a uh, uh, written decision by someone uh, in authority, and he even gives a form of the rescript to allow these people to receive Holy Communion. But, you know, when you read it, you think it's a rescript that is, is, is doing what is, in effect, um, excusing you from observing the Sixth Commandment. Mm-hmm. You know that's 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 what it bo- boils down to. Well, yeah, these are all silly, it. stupid ways of of 
just trashing the commandment, that's all. Sure. Well, uh, hopefully, Father, they can put that form online so you can fill it out and hit submit. You don't actually have to <laughs> print it out and bring it into your diocese. That's, make it, let's make it easier. We don't have to, you don't have to print it out. Just send it in. Just send it. Look into right. one just of those uh, electronic signatures. Yeah, right. <laughs> hit submit. Uh, we want to remind our listeners you're listening to Francis Watch on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm Stephen Heiner, and I've been joined so far today by His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn and Father Anthony Chicada. We've been discussing Francis's idea that the church, quote, can and must change. Uh, we've been talking about uh, the idea of power from, from the people that Francis pushes forward. Uh, people like Spadaro put, being a surrogate for Francis's ideas. And the ongoing influence of bishops and the appointments as well as the final policy on the divorced and remarried and receiving communion. Francis Watch is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to mail, M-A-I-L, at truerestoration.org. Your Excellency and Father, one of the people that are a a little bit, one of the the people that's a little bit more well-known in the United States among traditional Catholics is Pat, Pat Buchanan, because he's a Latin master. And so people give a little extra credence to his articles because they think, ah, he passed one of us. And uh, there's, a, there's an article that he wrote here uh, and at the end of October called, Is the Pope Toying with Heresy? Did either of you have a chance to look at this article? Uh, yes, I did. And uh, it's, uh, Buchanan has mentioned this, I think, at least twice before that the, uh, he's looked at some of the statements that, that Francis has made and is positively horrified by him because, of course, he's like us. He was uh, formed in the Vatican II religion, and he, he sees the contradiction. The pre-Vatican II religion. Or, or, yeah, the pre-Vatican II religion. Yeah. So, uh, you know, he sees, he, he sees exactly what the contradiction is. So it's, it's, it's uh, a... Uh, Comments from someone like uh, Buchanan are extremely significant because they um, give you an idea of what uh, conservative Catholics like him are really thinking about. So he he, uh, said, in effect, that uh, that Francis and company are bordering on heresy and that by changing the doctrine on divorce and remarriage and the reception of Holy Communion, you put into uh, danger the idea of papal infallibility, and uh, uh, you get into uh, an area where you are uh, possibly guilty of of, uh, of heresy. And so he, he warns about this, that even from a practical point of view, the churches that have, have done this uh, in the past... Um, the the religious bodies that have done this in the past uh, and tried to make this accommodation with modern culture have, uh, in effect, gone down the tubes. Hmm. Yeah, he Which, said again, at the end he, uh, that Bergoglio can uh, either uh, emulate Cardinal Wolsey, who, who pushed for the divorce of Henry VIII, or Thomas More, who refused the divorce. <laughs> so it, it's a good way to, to you know, uh, sum up the article. And that's what it is. It, it go the way of Protestantism or go the way of Catholicism. Sure. All right. Buchanan's always trying to reach this greater audience. So I, I understand his analogy, but obviously this doesn't apply because we're the Catholic Church is the real church, 
And these other churches, obviously, they went down these bad paths because they were error-filled. So he doesn't leave us with the, with the possibility that what he's suggesting is impossible. It's not possible yeah. for the Catholic Church to err. But he has to paint it this way so that uh, I think the conservatives can swallow it. We've got three yeah, news yeah. items. Okay. We've got Go three ahead. news items on ecumenism. And uh, as usual, they're, they're sort of money lines that need a little bit of unpacking. Because as with all modernist phrases, they have uh, this truth in them that, that needs to be, uh, that, that's covered over with a bunch of, of lies. And the first is the quote, all the baptized are members of the church. What was the context for this, Father Chikata? So he is in, uh, he's in Albania, and which had uh, Catholics and Orthodox and, and Muslims, and I don't think there are any uh, Protestants, but there were times of, of persecution. The um, communist government of uh, Albania uh, ruthlessly tried for for decades to suppress any form of, of uh, religion whatsoever uh, uh, in Albania, and so he's visited he visited there, and he's he's uh, uh, talking about this. He's talking about all of uh, those who who uh, had to shed their blood, as it were, in um, uh, in Albania because of religious beliefs. So he's he's got into this idea of the communio martyrum. Uh, he says this is the, the, the um, communion of the martyrs. This is the greatest sign of our journeying together. Um, the, uh, it has become a shared experience of Catholics, Orthodox, Anglicans, Protestants, Evangelicals, and Pentecostals, which is deeper and stronger than the differences which still separate our churches and ecclesial communion. So the, what he is, he is doing here is he is um, looking at this and he is uh, putting the uh, notion of uh, these so-called differences between different denominations, as you might call them, into sort of a secondary category. That, well, what is important is that um, everyone is, is shedding his blood, uh, A, and then... Uh, he says that well, uh, that all of these people, in any event, are members of the same. Or all the baptized are members of the same body of Christ, His Church. That's Vatican II ecclesiology. <clears throat> yeah. You know the, that you have a Church of Christ, which is broad and which uh, includes everybody that's baptized, and even in certain ways others that are not baptized. Different spheres of belonging to the Church of Christ, as John Paul II said. And uh, and then you have the Roman Catholic Church, which is the structure uh, in which the Church of Christ subsists. And those are two different things. So he's saying all of these people, and they identify the mystical body with the Church of Christ, the first big, broad church. And so everybody's a member of the mystical body of Christ. If he is, um, if he is uh, baptized... That's contrary to the teaching of the Church. The teaching of the Church is that the Catholic Church and the Church of Christ are one and the same thing, exactly. And that while uh, if you have a valid baptism, you are a member of the mystical body of Christ and are a member of the Roman Catholic Church uh, until you, uh, if you are raised in, in a non-Catholic religion, until you achieve the age of reason. And then you pass outside of the Roman Catholic Church, despite your baptism, uh, because you are adhering to a non-Catholic sect. 
So that, that's the, the traditional teaching of the Catholic Church, and, and this denies, this is the heresy of Vatican II. There's nothing in Bergoglio that is not in Vatican II. That should be underlined. I'm so afraid that an awful lot of people are saying, oh, Bergoglio, Bergoglio, and then he's going to die in a few years or resign, and then you know, it'll be back to the, to the Ratzinger mythology, that somebody like Ratzinger might be elected in reaction to Bergoglio, and then we're going to try to, to put a sugar coat on Vatican II. Bergoglio is faithful to Vatican II. He, he lived his early priesthood and, and seminary life during Vatican II. He knows Vatican II, and he's implementing it. The problem is Vatican II. It is not Bergoglio. And that that is something that must be emphasized. Uh, I can just see it. I could just see him, you know, drop dead one of these days, and and then we all go back to that silly and absurd Ratzinger era, uh, where he was canonized, even though he, you know, approved of of birth control devices. Uh, it, that that uh, that you just turned a blind blind eye to that. That doesn't exist. Uh, you know, that just doesn't exist. We won't talk about it. Uh, but let's look at those shoes, let's look at those miters, and those copes, they're beautiful. And and also he, he you know, uh, permitted the traditional mass by, you know, some sort of special permission. Uh, and uh, that he's a wonderful man. Uh, always, you know, being sort of, uh, uh, you know, the uh, an, uh, an embodiment of the hermeneutic of continuity, who is, you know, the unknown god, as I said, but an embodiment of that, that, you know, we can we can relate to Vatican II if we get this. That's what I'm afraid of, that, you know, that this is just a Bergoglio storm uh, and, you know, a, a Category 5 hurricane that's coming through and all of these Novus Ordo conservatives that will, will breathe easy when, when he passes on to his ultimate destiny. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I'm, I'm reminded, uh, Father Chikada and I got a uh, hold of a, um, a YouTube video, uh, which is a variation. There's a scene from a movie called uh, Downfall in which Hitler goes on a complete rampage. And, and in it, the Hitler, well, and then the, you put subtitles for whatever your pet project is. So <laughs> as, as Hitler is raving yeah. about, about how he's the greatest, the greatest military commander ever. And uh, and so in this in this YouTube video, all the subtitles are talking about how great the miters are. He said, you know, he had a maniple as long as your arm, and uh, and this sort of thing. So there's this sentimentalism uh, related. And of course, uh, interestingly, we you know we've had Cardin the, the theory thesis, and we've had all this other stuff, but we have a new thesis uh, since we have this resignationist. There there are people out there writing articles about the fact that Ratzinger is the, the, the true pope. Uh, and this guy's just an imposter, and he was forced out probably at gunpoint or whatever else. Uh, and he's really the the real holy father. Um, so I don't think that you're I, I don't think that you're off the off point there, Your Excellency. I think there's there might be some confluence of Bergoglio with the real problem, and I hope that people see that's not it at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, our our next news item uh, is t- entitled "Life is Bigger Than Explanation." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm going to read from a banner in the '60s, a felt banner, uh, <laughs> or, or a T-shirt. That would be a good T-shirt. <laughs> or, or, or on one of those uh, on one of those monument signs they have in the United States outside Protestant churches, where you put the quote of the week. Right? You know, <laughs> right, life right. is bigger, bigger than explanations. Come on in and find out, kind of thing. 
Um, yeah. And the, the, the quote uh, at the end of this piece uh, from Bergoglio is, I would never dare to give permission to do this because it's not my competence. One baptism, <laughs> one Lord, one faith. Talk to the Lord and go forward. Pause. And I wouldn't dare. I don't dare say anything more. Um, Father, what is he talking about? Is this the beginning of a horror movie? <laughs> it's more imminence, you see. You know, it's just the Lord talks to you. <laughs> That's right. Well, he uh, went to a uh, an ecumenical celebration at a, a Lutheran church uh, at which um, some of the... Um, uh, people in the congregation got to ask him questions, and a um, woman got up and asked him uh, a question about the reception of communion um, at uh, a Novus Ordo Mass. That um, you know, her her husband is not a Catholic. Uh, can he receive Holy Communion? If not, why not? Well, the uh, Bergoglio gave. Uh, I- 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 an explanation of this, which uh, boiled down to basically this, that if in your heart uh, you feel this is the right thing for you to do, if your husband feels in his heart this is the right thing for him to do, then he should uh, go ahead and do it. And Bergoglio got to that by, uh, you know, a couple of paragraphs going this way and that, talking about accompanying you on the journey and walking together and having the same baptism, what would Jesus do for us? Um, Mm. These are questions that if you're sincere with yourself and you have a little theological light, they have to be responded to. Uh, I can only respond to your question with another question. Uh, So uh, he uh, leads you to conclude that, uh, yes, in fact, if you examine, if your husband, who is... um, not a Catholic, examines his conscience, and uh, you accompany him, and you go uh, along with him on his, his journey of conscience, that yes, in fact, uh, it would be okay for him to receive. So that's the message that is being conveyed here to this woman. Just to point out, though, as shocking as this is, the, this was found in Vatican II and in the 1983 Code of Canon Law that that the uh, non-Catholics can approach the uh, Catholic communion, you know, for a serious reason and for, you know, a special occasion. And that's significant because uh, communion, uh, Holy Communion being the, the principle of the unity of the Church, and the sign of the unity of the Church, if you admit one exception to that, you, you break the whole thing up. Uh, you, you, it does not admit of exception. Uh, it, it's uh, it's like murder. It's uh, you know, well, one murder here isn't too bad. You know, the the uh, it, it's something that is intrinsically evil and can never be done because it it destroys the very notion of the of the unity of the church. So it goes back to Vatican II. It's in the decree on ecumenism, and it, it was it's you can find it again in the 1983 Code of Canon Law. So again, Bergoglio is not saying anything here that is not in Vatican II. So uh, I just want to to underline that. Well, I, you you could say that he is he is in effect uh, highlighting it. Uh, yes. Yeah, he's highlighting it by his 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 stream of of uh, idiotic comments. He's, yes. he's calling attention to it because now people are talking about this. Uh, people are talking about this again, and he's giving a 
the listeners a way to interpret these notions of, of Vatican II, of the ecumenical directory of the 1983 Code of Canon Law in such a way to... Uh, allow for this, because after all, life is bigger than explanations. And that reduces transubstantiation to an explanation. He's saying, well, you know, as he says, we both believe Christ is present. You know, you say, we, you know, we have one explanation, you have another. But life is bigger than explanations. That means the Catholic Church's dogma concerning transubstantiation, which was defined with the word transubstantiation at Trent, is merely a you know a way of describing Christ's presence, and it's you know it's not really very important. There could be other ways in which we could do that, and uh, that, that's it's uh, it is an abandonment of the Church's teaching concerning transubstantiation. I'm reminded in this response of Bishop Williamson's response to the the lady who asked him whether it was okay to go to the Novus Ordo and. And you have the same sort of wandering, do whatever, you know, is fruitful for you. And I wonder, are, are, are these, are you just afraid to tell an old uh, a lady, no, no, you can't do this, right? So, so Bishop Williamson contrives this long response to tell the lady, oh, it's okay. So Bergoglio hears from this lady, well, how come my husband can't come to communion? So, oh, well, you know, it's really okay. Your Excellency, it's okay to tell uh, these women no, correct? Well, just let me say that that is, in the logic books, a form of fallacy. Fallacy is a, a, a reasoning, it's any kind of discourse that you give uh, with the idea of communicating a message uh, that is false. All right? So it could, you know, it's a general principle, and you know, they're the very strict Aristotelian fallacies, but there are modern fallacies, and one of them is this, that you say something that is so confusing, but yet you know, stringing in various principles here and there, uh, that that you you per- permit someone to draw the conclusion at the end, the false conclusion at the end. Uh, that's 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 a fallacy. Uh, another fallacy is to use such uh, obtuse language and and uh, th- that nobody can understand it, but yet you manage to to get the the point across. Uh, I I referred to that to that in my newsletter as gibble gabble, which by the way is a perfectly good English word. I mean, most of that synod was gibble gabble. It was just uh, so confusing; no one could ever figure out, you know, unless you were reading it very, very cr- critically and knowing all the code, what that synod was saying, and it had to be decoded and translated. That's another form of fallacy. It's a modern form of fallacy. And so you should understand that that's exactly what he did here, and he is a master of that. He is a master of that fallacy, uh, of communicating a message through confusion and suggestion. And, you know, in the end, when you're done with that, you know, the man can go to communion. That, that's, the, that's the conclusion. Things that he said to Scalfari, too. Uh, that that uh, you know, it, it's very so. Tip, it's so typical of a modernist. The modernist never says yes or no. He he, he is a person that hates the, the truth as it is, exclusive of darkness and falsehood. He hates that idea of truth, and you must understand that about the modernist. He he is a classic modernist. Our last news item under the headline the the heading of ecumenism is. Pope orders no conversion in Catholic schools. Um, and it's a what you see is what you get quote. Um, the exact phrase was, 
Christian education is not only teaching catechism and proselytizing. Never proselytize in school. Emphasis is mine. Christian education is bringing up the young in complete reality with human values, and one of these values is transcendence. Today, there is a tendency to neo-positivism, which is education in imminent things in countries of Christian tradition, as well as those of pagan tradition. We are close to transcendence, but closure is of no use in education. Uh, you know, both of you uh, are, in, are in charge or have a relationship to, to running schools, uh, both obviously your excellency the seminary, but I know you also assist with a school down there in Florida. And Father, I know you have a school there at St. Gertrude's. Um, just make sure that uh, you don't proselytize to the kids. Uh, or, and that you're open to transcendence. Yeah. Sure yeah. That, you know. And watch uh, out for neo-positivism. Yeah. The the only thing I would say is this, that if you're talking about converting people to the Novus Ordo, it's probably just as well that those students <laughs> stay exactly where they are. I mean, it is the worst religion on the planet. That's the only, you know, everything you could say something positive about every other religion, but you can't say anything positive about the Novus Ordo. Father, you, do you have anything to say add to his explanation? Well, it's, it's, uh, the, it's, uh, it's gibble-gabble, and, um, uh, which sounds like a uh, noise that I guess the turkey makes, right, which is not that far <laughs> yeah. off here. Yes. But the idea, uh, never proselytize, I mean, that overthrows the whole idea of, you know, our Lord's command to the apostles. What is it? Going there for teach ye all nations. Yeah, <laughs> and, and also the the Catholic school. If we're not interested in preserving the faith, and if we're not, I mean, where do you begin? The yeah. the the whole idea of the necessity of being Catholic is what is behind proselytism. Yeah. Proselytism being you know that you preach the gospel to people and you and show them that the Catholic Church is the one true church outside of which there is no salvation. And and it overthrows that, that most basic dogmatic principle of Roman Catholicism. I mean, you, you, just, you just ruin the whole religion by saying that. Uh, indeed you do. And uh, the, uh, in, in the order of reality, uh, though, uh, this is just what's been happening uh, since Vatican II, in nominally Catholic schools, that people come out of there and they don't know anything about anything when it comes to the Catholic faith. It's just this, this, um, these, these uh, vague ideas. Somehow, it's our, our tradition, our background, etc., and that this is what's going to be of of uh, interest to us and make us nice, as it were, as as we go through life. But the idea of of any understanding, any clear understanding of uh, the faith, uh, even basic terms in uh, Catholic doctrine is is something that's uh, gone. And uh, Bergoglio is saying this is a good idea that you don't have it. Mm -hmm. No, the bottom line is this man is not a Catholic. Does everybody understand that? The only time you have sparks and friction in this is is to think of this human being as a Roman Catholic. And so you have to do all of these explanations. But it, the man is not a Catholic. You know, please, everybody, understand that. You know, he belongs to some other religion. 
our final segment for today's episode is, as Father Chicada calls it, Bergie the Crank in his uh, show planning. Um, for the Internet generation, uh, it might be called Trolling the Waters. Uh, the, the, the younger people would understand it better that way, Father Chicada. Um, and we've got, we've got three articles that fit under the Bergie the Crank. Uh, the first one I'm going to direct towards uh, Bishop Sanborn, and, and it's, it's words of warning, Your Excellency. Be careful of who you admit to the seminary. Um, yes, yes. And it says, uh, you can find this on La, La, uh, the Vatican Insider um, sub, subdirectory for La Stampa. And it says, the Pope told clergy, uh, this is from November the 20th, if you want to look this up yourself, because if, if you don't believe me, read it yourself. The Pope told clergy that they must think twice when a young man is too confident, rigid, and fundamentalist. Uh, this is hence this invitation that they beware when admitting candidates to the seminary. There are mentally ill boys who seek strong structures that can protect them, like the police, the army, and the clergy. So, uh, you know, you're just you're just pretty much where the dregs of society go, Your Excellency. That you know they go become a cop or they go into the military or they seek shelter at most holy trinities. Yes, and the structures. I remember the evil structures. Yes, well, he's concerned, obviously, that a number of the young clergy are, uh, what was the name that you gave the Father? Uh, uh, well, Father Retros. The Retros, yes, yeah. that the the, uh, the seminarians and young clergy are are conservative and they're full of structures and they're quite fundamentalist and rigid. Uh, I think that's a, you know, a concern. Um uh, for him, that they're not really pulling their modernists <laughs> into the seminaries. Uh, so, uh, and th- he says in that same talk or whatever he gave that rigid people make him nervous. Did you see that in there? <laughs> to be around rigid people <laughs> yeah, makes well. him nervous. You know, well, maybe he has a mental problem. If, if you know, maybe he should go to a shrink or something. Uh, but you know, to how cruel to reduce these people to people who are mentally ill. Uh, you know that that uh, you know here, no one is more dogmatic than a liberal, and I have always said that, and more intolerant than a liberal. To if he said I don't agree with these people, all right, that's one thing. But to say that that they are mentally ill. Uh, and and to compare them, you know, to, to these people that have to, you know, belong to some structure. I mean, he's saying if essentially all of those people, uh, whether it's the military, the police, or you know, conservatives in the church, are all mentally ill. Uh, you know, which is a grave insult. But that, of course, as we know, is how the dogmatic modernists operate, because uh, that was something that was. Um, <clears throat> that they certainly try to impose on uh, on us in the conservative uh, group that I was in in the modernist seminary that the idea is that, that there's something psychologically wrong with you if you uh, adhere in effect to Catholic doctrine that you have um, the uh, this is this is uh, rigidity and there's this lack of connection with reality and so on. And uh, good priests do not do this. They're not uh, rigid when it comes to doctrinal ideas. But it's a typical uh, leftist trick. The communists in, in uh, Russia would um, 
uh, had had a program for some of their their dissenters where they would send them off to a mental institution uh, and try to uh, the, there's a a place basically devoted to that in Moscow called the Serbsky Institute where if you were a dissident you were set sent there uh, to be branded and labeled as as uh, crazy so despite all of the um, feel good aspects of of uh, uh, modernism. Uh, the uh, idea of emotion and encounter and uh, warm feelings, etc. When it comes down to it, when it comes down to the questions of of, of doctrine, they're not willing to engage on an uh, intellectual or on a doctrinal level. They want to say that that you're, there's something psychologically wrong with you, and that's uh, and you're crazy, and that is basically what is coming through in Bergoglio's statement here. And, you know, as I say, this is the time tunnel back to the 60s. This is exactly the stuff that uh, they were pulling in uh, the 1960s, the people who were running these, these institutions, and who, by the way, many of whom themselves actually ended up in jail for other offenses that we won't name here. Mm. Well, <laughs> so. he also, he, well, you know, he also, the, uh, and it doesn't do Bergoglio's cause much good to constantly insult his opposition as if that's the only thing he can say about it is to insult them which he has done from the beginning i said that to dr fostigi in my in my debate with him back in 2004 he started hurling insults at me toward the end of the, <laughs> the debate and i just said to him very calmly it doesn't help your cause to criticize me as, as a person that as a matter of fact if anything it you know it says that you have no arguments left uh, if 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 Bergoglio were an honest person who who you know, was really convinced of, of his position, he wouldn't have to resort to insults in order to overcome his enemies in the Catholic Church. Uh, he, he could uh, overcome them by theological arguments, or you know, of course, he can't because there are none, and and you know that's that's why he has to resort to this. But uh, you know, the modernists are brutal and cruel. Uh, you know, I, I, both Father Chicada and I lived with them in the in the in the seminary and all that. They're brutal and cruel uh, toward anyone that will not go along with their program. They accuse Pius X of of the same thing, but uh, Pius X understood just what kind of people they were, and that's why he he eliminated them. You were saying don't feed uh, chickens to the alligators. Remember, Father Chicada told me that Bishop Sanborn avoids food fights. And I suppose that's exactly <laughs> the sort of thing that you're talking about, this sort of food fight. And uh, another, when it descends another... into that, it's it's so useless. And the person who is throwing the food it says, "I have nothing but this to do. I mean, I, I have nothing else in my hat except insults to you." And it really, you know, you, after that, you just keep quiet and, and let him speak and and show that he's he's you know just uh, like a garbage can rolling in the wind. One of the, the quotes he has in here, it is not normal for a priest to be often sad, nervous, or of hard character. It is not good and does no good neither for the priest nor for his people. Again, this, this idea that if you're doctrinaire, you must be sad or nervous or of a hard character. And the reality is that, Your Excellency, you know that grace built on nature, your priests, uh, your seminarians, they're of all different temperaments. And our Lord mm -hmm. builds on top of whatever personality you have. You have some quiet priests. You have some more outgoing priests, but 
there's no idea that the, the priests you produce are, uh, what are they, sad, uh, nervous, or of hard character. I haven't met any of your priests who are like that. No, this again is an absurd uh, and meaningless statement uh, that uh, he's associating any kind of insistence on doctrine as being hard and sad and all of that stuff and nervous. Uh, It's not even worth considering it's so stupid. Well, fair enough. We'll move on to the next point then, uh, Your Excellency, (laughs) and that is that church leaders can't live the life of a pharaoh. Uh, You can find this on, on Crux. And what came out on November the 6th on cruxnow.com, but I found out that the the article in question was really a chance for uh, Bergoglio to big himself up using uh, an article in which he says uh, there's corruption about money, and then he talks about how much money he gives away. And I found out it was really, I didn't know this, but there's a, uh, a, a papal lottery, uh, all the gifts he gets or cars that aren't being used are sold off or given away. So... Good news, if you give a gift to Bergoglio, he's going to sell it uh, and give the money to the poor. Um, and uh, did you did you see this article, Father Chikata? Yeah, it, it's another, I, I put it under Bergie the Crank, but um, it, what an idiotic thing to say. You know, a believer who speaks about poverty but leaves the life of a pharaoh, uh, uh, this is not uh, on, or this, this doesn't work. Well, I mean, uh, the idea uh, that is so, um, is uh, such an empty-headed statement that, uh, you know, of course, that, that if you speak about poverty, you should uh, live a, um, and you uh, present it as a value, that this is something that one should, um, uh, you know, you should, should be consistent when it comes to having a, a proper sort of detachment uh, from the goods of this world. But again, it's, it's, it's one of his um, uh, typical um, uh, exaggerations and um, uh, class struggle. Yeah, it, overstatements. We're, we're, it's socialism again. That, you know, we can't, that, that basically the wealthy are evil. And, you know, ironically, you know, he's been talking about this again as another one of his themes. But right under his nose, behind the Vatican Basilica, within the Vatican walls, Cardinals, I forget his name, Bertone, I think it was, managed to get millions, I believe, or at least a million dollars, to make a a palazzo out of his, his apartment, right under Regolio's nose. I mean, how can he talk about this? Why isn't Bertone canned for that? You know, I mean, he's, it's, it's just empty words. And then it says, essentially, if you have a lot of money, you're going to hell. I mean, well, life that's is bigger not... than explanations, Your Excellency. Let's not get carried away. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and and uh, so... You know, it's class struggle, uh, something that, uh, again, the popes warned against, the uh, Pius X warned against it. And I think Leo Thirteenth did, too, that any kind of idea of class struggle is, is, is prohibited by the Church. And, you know, a person who, uh, God, you know, makes the rich and the poor, and, in, and those in between as well, that the inequality of society in all things is a healthy thing. I mean, not this. You know, the the rich are there to to alleviate the, the the sufferings of the poor, 
and just as the the intellectual people are there to teach the those who are not very smart and strong people should help the weak and and so forth that, that, that there is an occasion of charity uh, that is generated those who are healthy should help the sick and that uh, that you know and, and poverty can come from all sorts of, of natural causes uh, one of the biggest is is your own laziness uh, that, that is the cause of, of uh, probably most of the poverty in the world, but it can be caused by various other you know, physical circumstances, like those who live in deserts, who choose to live in deserts, <laughs> you know, and then those to, who, who uh, choose to, to live in parts of the world where it's practically impossible to do, do anything except live in poverty. The, the, uh, those are all natural causes for poverty. The, power, the poor you will always have with you, our Lord said, they are a part of human life, and it is the the uh, obligation of the church and of all Catholics to alleviate the the conditions of the poor. Uh, and the best way you can do that is by giving them a job. Uh, and rich people uh, have the ability to do that. They are entrepreneurs usually. They have resources in order to to bring about jobs. The best thing you can do for a person who is in poverty is to give him a job, not to give him a handout but to give him a job. Uh, and uh, that's where the rich and the middle class come in. So, you know, it, he, he's denying, you know, one of the fundamentals of, of common sense. But what else is new? No. This is well, setting up a typical false uh, opposition. Yes. And uh, that's how he uh, he operates. Well, speaking of the wealthy, uh, he told he, his quote was, God sent my to wealthy Europe for shelter. And this is also in La Stampa uh, from November the 13th. Um, this is a topic, I have to say, Archbishop Father, that is very hot right now here in Europe. I think for the first time in many... I would say many, so after Paris. <laughs> well, for the first time in many years, there are people who are having serious discussions about immigration. The, the leftists that I know here in Paris, you, you start a discussion with them about this. They no longer have the conviction and sort of fire in their belly of their leftist cause, I think they're shocked from these events, and they're actually taking a real look at what migration means and these sort of larger values. It's just they've been woken from a trance. But apart from that, the idea that God sent migrants to wealthy Europe for shelter, he says, we, we could recognize that God in his wisdom sent us here in wealthy Europe the hungry so that we could feed them the thirsty so that we could give them drink, foreigners so we could welcome them, and the naked so that we could clothe them. I don't remember the part about welcoming suicide bombers so they could kill us. I don't remember that that part of Scripture, Your Excellency. Am I misunderstanding? Well, the, the, the problem with Europe is that it has lost its religion. It was the first objection. If this had happened, say, in the year 1200, the first objection would be, these people are Muslims. We cannot receive this many Muslims. Uh, I mean, you could receive maybe a tiny number and tolerate them for some reason. But the you can't receive Muslims en masse into a Catholic continent. Uh, any more than Saudi Arabia would open its doors to rosary-bearing Catholics to settle in Saudi Arabia. And to you know, set up a, a, a you know little Catholic communities in the Holy Land of Saudi Arabia, like as a suburb of Mecca, or something. And and uh, I mean that would be the first thing. The, the reason why they are welcomed into Europe 
is because Europe has embraced liberalism. And liberalism uh, despises any kind of difference of religion. At best, it's going to be indifferent to religion. It, it despises, you know, it, it is often atheistic. So there is no objection about religion, and there is no, you know, no idea that these people are going to disturb the, the European culture, which is a product of Catholicism. They don't see that. They just see European culture, you know, the, the food and all, you know, the nice buildings and the broke churches. And they don't see that as, as, a, as a product of Catholicism. So they think that they can receive these people in and assimilate them, and, and they'll just be wonderful Europeans after a few generations. It's not true. They will continue in their, in their religion, which gives them a license to kill people that in any way, in their opinion, uh, do damage or cross Islam, uh, and and you know that's perfectly in accordance with the Koran, and so they ha- everyone has a license to do that, and these people are now implanted, even if they don't pick up guns and do it. Nevertheless, they will have ghettos and neighborhoods in which this uh, will provide an ap- atmosphere of this culture. And there will always be some who will, will become radicals and will go and do that thing, and they will be right in the backyard of Paris or any of these other European cities, even villages. That's what Europe is doing to itself right now, and I, I read someplace that they expect another three million next year. <sighs> well, uh, there's, I'll you know, tell you, there's, it, plenty, there's plenty of my, in my neighborhood, Your Excellency, already. <laughs> yes, yes, I mean, it's... What Europe will look like in 50 years, I don't know, because the European races are killing themselves with a birth control pill, and at the same time they're admitting all of these Muslims and Arabs and whatnot. Europe is going to be very different in 50 years. I mean, I won't see it, but you might see it, uh, uh, Stephen, and uh, Father Chicada, forget about it, too. But the, the <laughs> I'm just sitting here drooling on the phone. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, but uh, these young seminarians that I have will see it. They will see a transformed Europe. You know, unless something totally unforeseen happens. But without the the return of the Catholic faith to Europe, it's doomed. It's a doomed continent. And uh, well, the the Baroque churches will turn into mosques. So go see them now before the big plaques go up with the Arabic writing on it. Oh, I, I agree, Your Excellency. That's why I try to get into every church that I can. I, I, I don't, I don't count on them always being here while I live here. Um, and I think you're right. I think ultimately, at least for Europe, and there are some even, um, you could say, sort of seculars here who I think are starting to grasp this. There, there's a an article that um, that Victor Hugo wrote a long time ago. He's no friend of the church, but he wrote an article about how Notre Dame is so important as a building. Um, to to France's history, and, and he talked about the archi- architecture and how it conveyed doctrine and how important it was. Even as a secular, he got this, uh, and mm-hmm. I think this this latest attack has woken some people up to maybe their true French heritage. But we'll have to wait and see on that. And that's no, a little don't, bit. Don't don't <laughs> remember nine eleven. Everyone was on on their knees. You know, God existed again after nine eleven. I think he he had a three week existence more or less. 
I wasn't familiar you know, that, with that that's reaction. That's just a reaction. The, the liberalism goes so deep. It, it is so, so deep. It is the protector of all of their evil liberties that they claim. Mm. Yes. Well, we'll leave that for another episode. Uh, Your Excellency and Father, um, thank you so much for um, a wonderful season of Francis Watch. I say wonderful uh, because despite covering absolutely horrible news, um, you've managed to be a, a great uh, sounding board for what real Catholic uh, priests and clergy think about these matters. And I think it's been, you've been a good opportunity. Uh, your your words have been a good opportunity for many Catholics to to take a, a, a real look um, I've had more than more than several people write me throughout uh, this season, t- telling them how, at one in one sense, it was very disheartening to hear you, but in the other sense, that it was important because no one else is talking to them like this in their life, and it gives them a real point of reflection. Hmm. Well, that's good to hear. Makes it worth it. All Indeed, of the grueling activity that we have, <laughs> all, all the, and having all the to nerves. read everything this guy says, <laughs> yeah, all, all the nervous ticks that uh, His Excellency gets when he gets yeah. an email from me—it's all worth it. Um, yes. Well, uh, by the way, we're uh, uh, we're doing Pashendi. We're doing a next uh, tomorrow. We'll do a more Pashendi. I I told. Uh, Matthew in England that if we don't get on the stick we're going to get yelled at by Stephen Heiner <laughs> <laughs> well we're, we're looking forward to the, the last episode Your listeners if you haven't listened uh, His Excellency did part one on Pashendi and he's very much in his element uh, he's, I don't know if he's just been waiting to do this show for a long time but uh, he's really well, looking I taught forward the to course, Pashendi. the Pashendi course for I don't know how many times over my seminary career I mean actually you know explaining it sentence by sentence to seminarians so I'm totally familiar with that and I happen to be covering in church history the modernist crisis in the Pius X reign so uh, you know I'm fairly my sword is fairly sharpened up at the present time <laughs> so, before uh, it uh, you know oblivion comes <laughs> well, my question is always just to see how are things uh, down at the seminary you must be getting ready to have exams before um, advent and christmas yes uh, yes uh, they come up uh, just uh, the middle of december we have uh, the close of the trimester and uh, yes that's sort of the dia zero for the seminarians and uh but things are, you know, it's always uh, going well and uh, no problems. And, you know, we would like to do a few projects, uh, like uh, the chapel and also the building. The building still needs some repair. And uh, so, you know, I would like to see more funds, as always. You know, <laughs> who has enough funds? But, uh, you know, but nothing is, you know, life is, is going on day by day without any problems. We if overcame like, the pigs. <laughs> they were out there uh, ruining the fields. There. Um, yeah. If you'd like, if you'd like to help uh, His Excellency with some of those funds, you can write directly to uh, Most Holy Trinity Seminary, 1000 Spring Lake Highway, Brooksville, Florida 34602. Uh, the secular world tells us it's the season of giving. Uh, so you might want to remember that uh, and send His Excellency some things. Uh, Father Chikata, you had an organ um, dedication. I, you were thanking some of your benefactors, and uh, you gave us a YouTube video of the organ on uh, display. Uh, yes, indeed. Um, 
we uh, last Sunday was the Feast of Saint Cecilia, so we thought it would be a good day to uh, bless our uh, uh, new organ, our new old organ, as it well as it were, and uh, that we did, and our young. Um, uh, organist here, Andrew Richardson, did a very fancy piece for the dedication, uh, the Dorian Toccata of uh, J.S. Bach. That is uh, available on uh, not on SGG Resources, but uh, on the St. Gertrude the Great YouTube site. And you can link to that from the parish site, which is uh, SGG. Parish site or the parish site? Ah, uh, excuse me, parish site <laughs> and parish. <laughs> We haven't been, been called that by Bergoglio yet. No, not yet, <laughs> I, I, I guess. Uh, <laughs> see, no, definitely from the parish site. Uh, and that is uh, sgg.org. So you'll, you'll see a link on there, uh, on there for, the, uh, for the video and the audio of that. And we're cranking up for Advent um, with our, our uh, first Advent Sunday, during which we have uh, naturally a procession. We're big on processions here. Um, we also have uh, available our uh, uh, calendar. That's available through sggresources.org. You can get a um, uh, you can order a copy of that as well. We also make available a copy of the priest's liturgical uh, ordo for the year t uh, uh, 2016. We have that available in two flavors. Uh, one is for the Cincinnati and Milwaukee archdioceses, and the other one is a universal ordo. And you can order that. Um, you can order that from the site as well. I'd be fascinated to find out how many you get from the Diocese of Cincinnati, Father, uh, who want to use your ordo. Well, we're not holding our breath here. So. <laughs> Did you include St. John Paul II in that ordo? Um, you know, I think for some reason we missed it because he was uh, <laughs> he was canonized during this year, wasn't he? Or was that the I year don't know. before? I don't know. Yeah, uh, uh, <laughs> that, that Otherwise, I won't buy it. Uh, yeah, well, the thing is that, that as far as the rank of it, uh, you know, it would be probably, instead of a major double, it would be major double talk of the first class. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, du double whammy of the first class, probably. Um, Your Excellency and Father, as always, thank you not only for a great episode, but thank you for a wonderful season. I suspect, unfortunately, that because we... Uh, we'll have no December show that our January show will be fully loaded to bear and uh, we'll, we'll have to, uh, to work through quite a lot, but thanks so much for this season. Thank you much for this episode and we look forward to seeing you next year, next season. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Stephen. Bye-bye. As always, if you have any questions for his excellency or father, please write to Francis watch at truerestoration.org, And we will do our best to pass those questions on to his excellency or father or have them answered on a future episode. All of us here at the restoration radio network would ask that if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your faith, that you please consider sending a note of thanks to the clergy who helped make our network worthwhile. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important donation you can make to our work here is prayer. Please think of offering a mass, a rosary, or even a simple ave for our work the next time that you pray. For the restoration, I am Stephen Heiner. May God bless you. Mm -hmm.